Christ encourages you and his love comforts you. God's spirit unites you and you are concerned for others. Now make me, that's the Apostle Paul, completely happy. Live in harmony by showing love for each other. Be united in what you think as if you were only one person. Don't be jealous or proud, but be humble and consider others more important than yourselves. Care about them as much as you care about yourselves and think the same way that Christ Jesus thought. Christ was truly God, but he did not try to remain equal with God. Instead, he gave up everything and became a slave when he became like one of us. Christ was humble. He obeyed God and even died on a cross. Then God gave Christ the highest place and honoured his name above all others, so that at the name of Jesus everyone will bow down, those in heaven, on earth and under the earth. And to the glory of God the Father, everyone will openly agree, Jesus Christ is Lord. We're going to come to God in prayer now. And I'm using a prayer from Gathering for Worship, which has a response. And it's fairly straightforward. When I say, hallowed be your name, would you then join me in repeating that phrase, hallowed be your name. So let's pray together. Lord God, early in the morning, when the world was young, You made life in all its beauty and terror. You gave birth to all that we know. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Early in the morning, when the world would least expect it, a newborn child crying in a cradle announced that you had come among us, that you were one of us. Hallowed be your name. Early in the morning, surrounded by respectable liars, religious leaders, anxious politicians, and silent friends, you accepted the penalty for doing good, for being God. You shouldered and suffered the cross. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Early in the morning, a voice in a guarded graveyard and footsteps in the dew proved that you had risen, that you had come back to those and for those who had forgotten, denied and destroyed you. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Early in the morning, in the multicolored company of your church, on earth and in heaven, We celebrate your creation, your life, your death and resurrection, your ascension, and your interest in us, now and always. Amen. The first reading is from the Old Testament from the book of Psalms, Psalm number 47. Clap your hands for joy, all peoples. The Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. He is a great king ruling over all the world. He gave us victory over the peoples. He made us to rule over the nations. He chose for us the land where we live, 
the proud possession of his people whom he loves. God goes up to his throne. There are shouts of joy and the blast of trumpets as the Lord goes up. Sing praise to God. Sing praise to our King. God is King over all the world. Praise him with songs. God sits on his sacred throne. He rules over the nations. The rulers of the nations assemble with the people of the God of Abraham. More powerful than all armies is he. He rules supreme. And in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Dear Theophilus, in my first book, I wrote about all the things that Jesus did and taught from the time he began his work until the day he was taken up to heaven. Before he was taken up, he gave instructions by the power of the Holy Spirit to the men he had chosen as his apostles. For 40 days after his death, he appeared to them many times in ways that proved beyond doubt that he was alive. They saw him, and he talked with them about the kingdom of God. And when they came together, he gave them this order. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift I told you about, the gift my father promised. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When the apostles met together with Jesus, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time give the kingdom back to Israel? Jesus said to them, The times and occasions are set by my Father's own authority, and it is not for you to know when they will be. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be filled with power, and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up to heaven as they watched him, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They still had their eyes fixed on the sky as he went away, when two men dressed in white suddenly stood beside them and said, Galileans, why are you standing there looking up at the sky? This Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you saw him go to heaven. Amen.
I guess you'll be relieved to know I'm not going to ask you any more questions. Now, had I been really wanting you to win, I'd have just got the choir, because I think the choir can do most of this with their heads standing standing on their heads. They can all recite the Bible. I know that for a fact. Anyway, I am going to ask you a question, but you don't have to answer it. I'm going to ask you a question that is posed by the Mad Hatter to Alice in the story of Alice in Wonderland. Why is a raven like a writing desk? When Alice replies that she doesn't know, the Mad Hatter admits that he doesn't either. Now, since that book was published, people have come up with all sorts of answers, some very creative and some quite plausible, but none of them definitive. Even the author, Lewis Carroll, was persuaded to proffer a response to the question in later editions of the book despite the fact that his intent was almost certainly to pose an unanswerable riddle, possibly satirising certain kinds of philosophy that were popular at the time. His point is, I think, well made. There are some riddles, some puzzles, some conundrums and some questions to which there are ultimately no definitive answers. A question can be grammatically correct and verbally comprehensible without being meaningful. And that's the point of this question. Why is a raven like a writing desk? It makes sense, but it doesn't mean a fat lot. Or this quote from Through the Looking Glass. Alice is having an, order, an audience sorry, with the Queen of Hearts. I am 101, five months and a day. Can't believe that, said Alice. Can't, you said the Queen in a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the Queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. One can't believe impossible things. A good, sensible, logical reply which earns a seemingly ridiculous response. And so I wonder, again, is the author poking fun at those who equate plausibility to scientific demonstration, to irrefutable evidence or logical consequence? Lewis Carroll, whose real name was Charles Dodgson, Dodgson, combined a career as a mathematician teaching at the University of Oxford with ordination as a deacon within the Church of England. And when I looked him up this week, he was described as being conservative and high church. And I suspect these two influences, his mathematical training and his theological understanding, informed his thinking. Now, whatever you think about the stories or the author, I do think perhaps these ideas from Wonderland are helpful for us to keep in mind today as we think a little bit about the mystery that is the ascension or the exaltation of Jesus Christ. 
But before we do that, it would be disingenuous not to recognise the sceptics, agnostics and atheists who raise questions and objections to the story of the Ascension that we can't simply ignore. They have some valid questions that they ask. And it seems there are three main lines of objection. Firstly, on textual grounds, there is a disparity between the accounts in Luke and Acts which share a common author and seem to set the event in two different places and 40 days apart, once seemingly on Easter Sunday and the others on the date we call Ascension Day. Only the later and disputed ending of Mark includes an Ascension account and Matthew and John make no reference to it at all. So their argument is there are three accounts and they don't match, therefore it's wrong. The second argument they come up with is about corroboration. Is there any external or objective evidence to support the assertion of the gospel and acts? Well, no, there isn't. And they also would say as part of this, look at the characters, these people in the story who just don't seem to understand, they just get it all wrong, they're, they're not very convincing, are they? So either they're, in, they're wrong, or this is an incredibly sophisticated fabrication. And then the third one they come up, their third objection, is implausibility. It just doesn't seem possible at least not with a post-Enlightenment scientific worldview. People just don't get whisked away in clouds, whatever the ancients might have said or believed. So three main objections from the sceptics about the Ascension story. So is the sceptic a bit like Alice then, who is unable to believe what defies logic or experience, asking reasonable questions about the impossible thing in which the queen, for which we could read Christians, believes. Is that reasonable? Is Alice the right sceptic doing that? Or is the sceptic the mad hatter who asks questions that actually are unanswerable and so misses the point? I have a feeling, you see, that if we get hung up on the how, how did it happen, and the what of the Ascension story. We miss the point. And actually, it's more fruitful to explore the why of the story and the so what of the story. Why has somebody bothered to tell us this story twice in slightly different ways, accepted? How does that fit into the bigger gospel story? And so what? The American Baptist theologian Stan Grentz, in his one-volume Systematic Theology, observes this. Many modern scholars have treated the Lucan depiction of the Lord's ascension into heaven with benign neglect, if not hostility. And I think he's right. Biblical scholars have to recognise and wrestle with the textual problems that delight the sceptics. But if they do so, they risk falling into the trap of missing the point, just the same as the sceptics do. Why is the story told? That's a better question. What is its purpose? According to Grant's, the story has a didactic and an apologetic function. And he cites by way of example Acts 23, 
this Pentecost story, where the ascension and exaltation of Jesus is part of the, the sermon that Peter gives that day. In other words, this story is part of how people explain their faith. The precise how and what of the ascension are less important than the why. How does this fit into the bigger story of God's redemptive purpose, of God's inbreaking kingdom of peace and shalom? Grenz proposes two discrete but interconnected factors, each of which is both a continuation and an extension of Christ's earthly role and each of which has human parallels within the church. Firstly, Christ's role as an intercessor or a paraclete continues, but now explicitly in the life of God. If you recall, a week or two ago when we looked at John 14, Jesus made reference to another paraclete who would come when he left. And so Jesus was a paraclete, and in a sense that role continues So, for those who like chapter and verse, Romans 8.34, Hebrews 7.25, and 1 John 2 verse 1, I know you're all desperately looking for those now, they all make reference to Christ interceding, acting as a go-between on behalf of humanity in the presence of God. So that's partly what the Ascension story is about, that Jesus Christ is now returned to God and continues to intercede on our behalf. And what Gren says is, well, if Christ does that, then we should do that for others. Even if sometimes all we can actually do is to pour out our sighs and our groans and our frustrations to God and trust that God will make sense of it. If Jesus effectively prays to God for us, then we should pray for others. Secondly, he asserts that the ascension is essential to the liberation of the church for mission. Christ continues to inspire and guide the church, not by his presence, but by the Holy Spirit, the other paraclete, comforter, counsellor, or whatever word you prefer to use. By departing the particularity of his earthly ministry, the universality of its good news becomes possible. In other words, Christ's departure is necessary to the work of God. It can't go out to the whole world, the whole creation, if Jesus remains in one place and one time. And that seems to me very much key to making sense of the ascension, whatever its physical or metaphysical expression. It was necessary for the church to be the church. If the disciples were actually going to become fishers of people, if they were actually going to go to the ends of the earth and take the good news and make disciples, if the kingdom of God was not going to be just close at hand, but real and present, then that physical dislocation between Jesus on earth and Christ in heaven had to be restored. Rowan Williams, the erstwhile Archbishop of Canterbury, writing in the SCM New Dictionary of Christian Theology, offers a helpful but probably more erudite summary of what I've tried to say. Doctrinally, then, 
the ascension, whatever its historical and narrative uncertainties, marks the culmination of the resurrection gospel. The universalizing of Jesus' relevance to all aspects of human life, individual and global. The present possibility of a share in Jesus' loving union with his Father, that is, a life of both trustfulness and authority. The crowning of the purpose of Jesus' life and death in a restoration of fellowship between heaven and earth. It represents both a call to witness and to recognise Christ in the world of which he is declared Lord. And the promise of a transformed or deified life as the ground and source of witness. Now that's a lot to take in, and I was going to read it a second time, but time's against me. Uh, So I've printed it out, and you can just pass those out. So you've got Rowan Williams' words, if you wish, to take away with you after the service. But what he's basically saying is we shouldn't get hung up on the mechanics of the ascension. What's important is the why of the ascension and the so what for our lives here on earth. We might never finally resolve the textual inconsistencies between Luke and Acts, but what matters is that this was a key moment in the lives of the disciples as they began to become the agents of change Jesus called them to be. It doesn't matter how well-equipped they or we are to respond to the sceptics and naysayers who say, oh, it's just a load of old codswallop. What matters is how our hearts and our minds and our lives are transformed by a story that we believe carries truth. What matters isn't finding full and final answers, a tidy theology with all the loose ends sewn up. What matters is that we join in the work of the kingdom, interceding for others as we believe Christ intercedes for us, being and speaking good news in a world in need of hope. What matters is not knockdown proof. What matters is trusting the promises are true. That the one who broke into human experience by being born as a child lived as an itinerant preacher and wonder worker, died as a blaspheming criminal, is the Christ who has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us and for all in the eternal kingdom of God's shalom. We come with our prayers for others. Let us pray. Risen and ascended Lord, we thank you for the truth at the heart of this day, that you came to save not just a few, nor simply your own people, but all the world. You are King of kings and Lord of lords, your love reaching out to the ends of the earth, your glory filling the universe. We thank you that though you were born in Bethlehem and ministered in Galilee, though you spent your life in Palestine and died in Jerusalem, your love has transformed lives in every country 
and every continent, crossing barriers of culture, colour and creed, unable to be contained by either space or time. We thank you that no one is outside your love, whoever they may be, whatever they may have done. You value all, have time for all, and respond to all. Risen and ascended Lord, ruler of all, servant of all, we pray for the kingdoms and rulers of this world, that those in positions of authority may use their power in the service of their people and for the good of all. In particular, we think of countries where the eyes of the world are watching to see how difficult situations are handled. The ongoing unrest in Ukraine, the kidnapped schoolgirls in Nigeria, the abuse of women in India and Pakistan, the persecution of a Christian woman in Sudan, tension in South Sudan, conflict in Syria, the difficulties between Israel and Palestine. The list seems endless. We pray for those who take counsel together on behalf of nations, all those who carry the responsibility of leadership. Grant them wisdom in all their decisions. Humility to listen to the point of view of others. Courage to stand up for what is right. And a determination to work for justice and peace. We think of our own country and pray for the royal family and especially our Queen, thanking you for the example she has given, the dedication to duty she has shown and the commitment to our nation she has displayed throughout her rule. Grant to her your guidance, discernment, strength and inspiration. We pray for our government and members of Parliament, both in Westminster and Holyrood. Guide them in their decisions and discussions and give them a proper sense of the responsibility entrusted to them. Help them to work not just for personal or party interest, but for the good of all. We pray for all who strive to build a fairer society and a better world. Those who campaign against poverty, injustice and exploitation. Who work for peace and reconciliation. Who offer healing to body, mind and spirit. Who serve the needy. Encourage them in their work. Support them in difficulty, equip them with the resources they need, and make known your love through their ministry. Risen and ascended Lord, we pray that your kingdom may come, despite everything that seems to fight against it, a kingdom in which the first shall be last and the last shall be first. 
a kingdom in which everything that frustrates your purpose and denies your love is defeated, a kingdom in which all people live together in justice and harmony. We bring our prayers in the name of our risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us go now. And as we go, may we know this. In grace we were created. In mercy we have been sustained. And in love we will be held forever.